Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I am your host, Elaine miller Karras. And if you'd like to reach me, you can reach me at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. I am so grateful to our three guests, and I think we're going to have very interesting dialogue regarding systems change. This episode um, dives in to an exploration of how trauma shows up as a force to be reckoned with in systems that touch our lives, our education systems, healthcare systems, housing systems, all systems, drawing on insights gathered by the Collective Change Lab, and we're going to learn a lot about the Collective Change Lab today, um, in conversation their conversations with dozens of social change leaders in Sri Lanka, Romania, Australia, Tasmania. I always love to say the word Tasmania. That's a nice ring to it. Canada, <laughs> Colombia, India, the United States, and elsewhere. In this episode, my very illustrious, illustrious guests, um, Laura Calderon de la Barca, Jean, oh gosh, Kenya, and Catherine Milligan, will offer their collective healing practices adopted by social change leaders in pursuits of system change. I wanna give you a brief biography about each one of them, but I would really encourage you to go to Voice America's um, page of Resiliency Within for a longer biography because they are very accomplished individuals. I'm gonna start with Catherine. So she is the director at the Collective Change Lab, a think tank that provides practical inspiration, insight, and guidance for attaining transform transformational collective change. She was named a top 100 women in social entrepreneurship. I am impressed by the Euclid Network. She teaches courses on social innovation and entrepreneurship at the Graduate Institute of Inter International and Develops Developmental Studies at Fordham University. And she is a well-published -pub person um, and has produced many publications, article, articles, and blogs. Laura Calderon de la Barca is a psych psychotherapist specialized in collective trauma, as well as a collective healing researcher, educator, consultant, linguist, and cultural analyst. Besides her private therapeutic practice, she collaborates with research and fat facilitation in the Academy of Inner Science and the Pocket Project, bringing the wisdom of Latin American voices to thousands of people in a global audience. She leads her own workshops on trauma healing and has worked in Canada and Mexico with indigenous communities. So John Kenya is a pr practitioner, researcher, writer, teacher, and speaker on how organizations and people can achieve change together. He is the founder and the executive director of Collective Change Lab. And I was really impressed, when I, John, when I was reading about your publications, because there's not many people that can say he authored something in 2011. It's called Collective Impact, which remains Stanford Social Innovation Review's most read art article ever. Oh, my goodness. And John's most referenced article, The Water of Systems Change, is being used around the world today to bring clarity to systems change and to help people achieve their collective potential. So welcome my three guests. And we have many, many questions to ask you. So I would just wanna dive in. Um, so I'm gonna start with the first question. So you all are exploring the connection 
between collective trauma and systems change. Before we talk about the linkages between the two, let's ground our conversation with a brief overview of each of these concepts. And let's start with collective trauma. So Laura, can you explain your interpretation of intergenerational and collective trauma and and what brought you to this work? Thank you so much, Elaine, for having us, first of all. And um, I would like to start with a little um, share about my life because that's that's where this started for me by having the experience of intergenerational and collective trauma that started at a young age. And I had no idea that that's what it was. So um, one of the events that I recall is being about um, eight or nine years old and going to the school that I used to go to. And then having a white boy standing next to the door to the school and coming to me and then hissing in my ear, negra, you know, and the impact of those words in my body was just massive. I, you know, my heart was pounding. I, you know, there was such an agitation inside of me and yet my exterior just froze. And I was like, I felt so much shame. I had to like walk really quickly to the, to the, um, to the room that I was going to be, have, be having class in and, you know, bury my head behind a book. I told nobody because I didn't want the shame to increase by exposing it, you know, and later on, when I reflected upon this experience, I was struck by just how intense it was. And, you know, my life was not at risk in that moment, but my body reacted as though it were. Mm-hmm. And so this is an example of the experience of intergenerational and collective trauma. Why? Um, it turns out that my parents were both children of single mothers, and we all carry some indigenous you know, blood in us. And being in Mexico, where being indigenous is seen as less than, we all had been shamed at some point in our lives because of that. Um, so... To me, intergenerational trauma is the link between all the collective impacts that happen when there is a catastrophic event or a catastrophic series of events that, you know, that that hurt the systems that we have established to sustain our lives as, as communities, but also that can have a different kind of impact when we're not talking about a natural disaster. Because, yes. you know, you were you were saying you were in Mexico yes. City during yes. the earthquake, right? Yes. And it was... It, as, as tremendously destructive as it was, it was also a moment of reckoning for, for my country, my society, particularly in Mexico City, of coming together, of people welcoming strangers, supporting strangers, and really becoming, get, really getting a sense of ourselves as a larger body, as a collective body. You know, and that's the opportunity with collective trauma when it's about natural disasters. However, when what we have is war, when what we have is colonialism or slavery, the impact in the relatedness between human beings is massive. And so that solidarity is becomes disabled or it's so much harder to access it because of the fragmentation, the isolation we need to go to to preserve our lives. In, in the face of those kinds of, of situations. And Laura, if I, can, if I can say what I also heard you say is something that I think is important, and that's the embodiment 
of the, oh, sure. of the macro and the microaggressions, that it's not only in what we think and what we feel, but it really gets embedded into the body. Absolutely. And, so, and so then there can be so many cues that can happen in maybe situations where someone might even be coming towards you in friendship, but you might have a reaction because of the color of their face or the way that they're dressed or just some kind of subtle approach that is sometimes below our conscious awareness. For sure. You know, I remember then um, seeing this was in an upper middle class school and I, you know, just the, the habitus, the, the way of walking, the way of speaking, you know, the, the appearance like in general of this group of people got so embedded in me. I remember seeing somebody in the like in a different country and just knowing this person. And then I saw I heard him speak Spanish in the same kind of Spanish. My body could just recognize that. Yes, 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 yes. And I, you know, I have to say, and um, many of our listeners know that my mother was from El Salvador. And I, when I went to El Salvador, they used to call me Chelita. And so, but because there were so many different colors and they were light skinned, like my, like me and my mom. And that we had very, very, like we'd say negra, right. Those, the dark. And so, but we were all also one family, but there was also the family system that supported each other, but there was a system outside where, the um, all of our blood, which I uh, also have indigenous blood, that they they were tr- they tried to deny that it existed because there mm. was so much prejudice towards it, which also c- exactly. creates another level of trauma that I think is so embedded exactly. in colonialism. For sure, and you know this whole sense of shame. When I was doing my PhD, you know. Um, I was looking at why Mexico has this um, issue with identity. And what I found was that their shame had been passed on generation to generation. Now, later on, I started to learn more about how that happens, you know, and the epigenetic systems that end up transmitting the information from the environment when one had trauma gets coded into that part of the genetic system, the epigenetic system, that is like the light switch for for the genes to express themselves or not. So the genes don't change with trauma but their expression changes right and so then shame can get passed on that way and that was part of what was so intense for me along with the sense that my life was at risk because for some of my ancestors it had been so I'm just going to underscore because that means there's a biological reaction Correct. And and I think that's so important for all of us to know when we deal with trauma. Now I'm gonna I want to go to the next question, but I have to. You were reminding me of something when I was in Mexico City after the um, uh, after the horrible earth, last earthquake. Um, there was a recording of first responders, and to me, it was the resiliency of the Mexican people. I'm just gonna. Mm-hmm. So they had the people that were coming away from really clearing out rubble, and this group of first responders were singing. Ay, 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 canta no lloras. And oh my goodness. And they'd show it to me. And every time they'd show it to me and the whole group, we would all start gratitude mm-hmm. tears, right? So I, I think it's also important as we really jump into this, these um, ideas we're talking about, that the strength that exists within our, our humankind is, sure. is something also that can be amplified. For anyway, sure. I wanted to share yeah. that. I don't know if you saw that, but it was such a sweet little um, image that was going around the world. So let's go to the next question. Um, um, many of our listeners may be familiar with the term systems change, but it's probably a new concept for many of us. So John, I'd love to ask you for your reflections on how you define a system and what do we mean by this term systems change? Sure. First, thanks, Elaine, for having us on your show. Uh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Yeah. yeah. So both systems and systems change are, are concepts that are definitely gaining increased currency in society. We hear more about these terms. Um, 
but they've been around for decades, if not longer. Um, so a way to think about a system is that systems are made up of interrelated, interdependent, and interconnecting parts. So you used the phrase earlier, family system. So a family is a system, interconnected, interrelated, interdependent. Uh, a comp- an organization is a system. And we can also talk about larger systems in society, like the educational system or the healthcare system that includes countless individuals and organizations who are invested in education or health. So a key point to know about systems, whether we're talking families, organizations, or larger systems like education, is that the systems systems are highly fluid. So there's no one individual that controls a system. And it's actually the system itself through its multiplicity of interactions that brings about change. So this is where the notion of systems change comes in. So you may have heard others use the expression or use, use the expression yourself that we're living in a time of broken systems, right? Yes. That are, you know, at, at the very least, they're holding back, uh, you know, people from improving their well-being. And at worst, they're destroying the well-being of many people, particularly those in our society uh, who are marginalized, such as many BIPOC individuals or immigrants or people who are poor. So if we accept the fact that most of our systems like education or healthcare or criminal justice are broken, then there's a need to catalyze or facilitate change in those systems so that they work better. And that's what systems change is all about. So, um, so can I just ask you, like, um, I know we've had many conversations about our law enforcement system yes, and that it's broken and it was created long before any of us were ever born and that we're all dealing with the repercussions of how those systems were created. That's right. So is that one of the systems that, that you would work with in your organization to see how do we, how do we change that? How do we create the impact of that kind of system change on a macro level? Is that? Yeah, no, exactly. You know, we might, so law enforcement or criminal justice or education or healthcare. And, you know, I mean, a lot of times when we say the systems are broken, then somebody else might say, well, the systems are doing exactly what they were designed to do. Because they were designed often for, you know, probably in most cases, for white privileged men. And um, so, so, so what we need to do is shift the system so that, you know, when we talk about systems change, uh, one of the frames that we use is to think about structural systems change, like policies and practices and money and resource flows. And those are the things that most people can see and identify. But there's stuff below the surface mm-hmm. in terms of relationships and connections and power dynamics and who control, who makes decisions and who controls the narrative in terms of power. And then even the deepest level, what we call sort of the transformational dimensions of a system, which are really our worldviews and our mental models. And we see this every day in so many different ways in the polarization that we have, that these are parts of the system that we actually need to shift as well not just the structural levels, but these deeper, what we call more cultural dimensions of systems uh, that we need to shift if we want to see the world that many of us are hoping for. Well, you know, I think that I've especially noted that in the last four or five years, that there's been a percolation for me of more visual evidence of exactly what you're talking about, in that these kinds of, um, you know, we can say they're embedded in trauma or are embedded in in systems that were designed for for white men, as you said, and then now they're carried out in a, a very diverse society that they don't work in the same way. And yet when we start having conversations about it, sometimes the dialogue isn't very compassionate. So I'm hoping that one of you might want to touch upon that. How do we create those compassionate dialogue when you have people that feel very strongly 
such, you know, and I think that during COVID, I saw this in my own family where, you know, where the people wanted to mask or not. And so much of it was politically based. When I'm saying, wait a second, this is public health. We just want to not get this virus so that we can stay healthy. Right. So it was such a, it was such a, it still is to me somewhat of an enigma. I don't know if you want to comment on that or not before we get to our next question. Well, yeah. I mean, I think in this world of, you know, greater and greater theoretical connection that were in many instances, different parts of society are growing further apart. And our whole approach to systems change is that it's relational. And that, you know, if we want to see, for example, power and authority shift how they make decisions, they'll only shift if their values shift. And their values typically will only shift if they're in relationship with people differently than they've been in relationship before. So this whole nature of relationships and connection as the key to creating compassion and empathy, you know, we see this in superintendents in school who do, you know, they'll shadow student for several days and that will create a hugely different perception for them of, you know, what the experience is like in schools and they'll start to make decisions differently. So it can happen on so many different levels. You know, and I'm, 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 I'm laughing because all of a sudden I started thinking about that show called Undercover Boss and, and yeah. the bosses, right? I mean, talk about, they go and they, yeah. they become a worker and right. all of a sudden they come back and go, oh my gosh, yeah. I did not know yeah. that that existed. And it changed the way they sometimes structured their organization. So I know that's a, um, I don't know why that popped into my head, but it, it did as you were talking about that. So yeah, so. no, I mean, the, the ways that we've seen, you know, sort of mental models or worldviews shift, uh, Often we think it's, you know, if we can convince somebody through writing, et cetera, but it's typically either through relationships they have with people differently than they did before or an experience like another undercover boss that they have that totally. (laughs) So we tend to think about, yeah, we tend to think about, you know, we, we, we think our way into a different way of doing or acting, but the reality is most times we act our way into a new way of thinking. Yeah. So, um, that kind of leads me to the next question. And so the three of you have embarked on, on a collaboration together to generate new insights by bringing together and integrating the perspectives of trauma and systems change. So Catherine, can you tell us uh, about the goals of your collaboration? Yes, thank you. So at the Collective Change Lab, we're working with a multidisciplinary coalition of partners led by the Wellbeing Project and Georgetown University. And Our aim is to deepen our collective understanding of how intergenerational trauma um, is, as you said, Elaine, a force to be reckoned with in many of the largest systemic issues and injustices um, plaguing our societies today. And the partners in the coalition are exploring this is a complex and challenging topic through uh, a variety of lenses. And our contribution to this effort is through the lens of systems change. um, as John just explained, you know, that's that's an approach and a mindset that an increasing number of, of change makers, social entrepreneurs, collective impact leaders um, are embracing. Let's just kind of say social sector leaders, right, as a catch-all. Um, and by definition, that's not about or not just about, you know, kind of right scaling a program or a product or a service. Um, it really means working with and influencing um, other actors, right, in the, in, in the system that you're working in, uh, the criminal justice system mm-hmm. being just one example. And so the question that we're asking is, well, what do we learn when we integrate the perspectives of intergenerational trauma or collective trauma and systems change? And second, you know, whose perspective are we learning from to help us answer that question? And 
for us, it's been extremely important to be in conversation with and learn from the experience and wisdom of dozens of social change leaders, indigenous leaders, community leaders um, who are working on different um, systemic issues across the global uh, global north and global south, as you uh, referred to in your introduction, and to really listen to their experiences and understand um, how collective trauma shows up, um, not just in the systems, but also, you know, in the relationships between the actors and the institutions they're working with and trying to influence. And so, you know, our hope is that by weaving together, you know, their experiences and insights, we can help to shed light on the connection between intergenerational trauma and systems change in a way that's accessible to other social sector leaders. Because right now it's just it's not part of the mainstream conversation yeah, about you know, social change. As you're talking about it, and this is, you know, just a, a thought that came up, and any of you can answer this, is that I was thinking about here I am, I'm 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 in my 60s. And until two years ago, I did not know what happened in Oklahoma um, with the black community there. Um, that they called the Black Wall Street. And I learned a whole, I really delved into what happened there and thinking that it was completely left out of, I went to um, a progressive school. I mean, I went to all sorts of uh, educational, had all all sorts of educational experiences that why was that never spoken about? And and to me, that's so integral in our discussion of um, transgenerational trauma is that if we don't have a correct history, then how can we help to heal? Like what you were talking about, Laura, about, you know, even that we all have indigenous blood if we come from Central America, right? Because of just the mixture of the Spaniards coming in and taking over, right? But if we don't talk about that, and if we don't have the dialogue in our school systems, for example, and we see that people not wanting to talk about accurate history, I'm just wondering what are your comments about what the systems change theory as being the lens of how you're looking at this? Easy, easy question. Oh, I'm, I'm happy to jump in. I, I, I think it's, you're exactly right. I had exactly the same experience that you did. Um, yeah. And I, I know many others did as well. And it was pretty horrifying. Yes, that, it was horrifying. That, that we did not know anything about this and that, um, you know, I, I do think this is a big issue uh, all around the world and certainly in the United States that uh, if we can't surface and have a conversation about these, it, it, we're not going to be able to, you know, we, uh, a uh, really wonderful and, and amazing person, Louise Mara, uh, who's in New Zealand, uh, runs an organization called the Unity House. And um, we were actually just chatting with her last week. And one of the perspectives she offered to me, which I felt really profound, is that 90% of the solutions solutions that we're developing around social change are coming out of a place of trauma. Yeah. Hmm. They're coming out hmm. of that reactive place of trauma. Mm-hmm. And unless we actually can surface that trauma, and if we pick the United States, everybody's been traumatized by events like that. Everybody. Unless we can surface that trauma, we're going to keep over and over and over again, repeating, you know, the, the mistakes of, 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 of the past. And so I think it's absolutely essential that uh, this, you know, we need to surface this and, and have these conversations. Yeah. yeah and, I, and I think as you say that, um, having been in dialogues with numbers of different people is how do we all stay in the room together? Because <laughs> I think yeah. there is also that feeling, going, I'm out of here. 
uh, we're not going to ever come to any kind of um, agreement. So then I'm just going to leave. And then that doesn't help us either, does it? So it's um, so I, I'll be really curious. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about that um, after we come back on the break. But I wanted to circle back to Catherine and, and see if there's anything you wanted to add about that question, Catherine. I know that just this is what happens to me. So a question will pop into my head that's connected to what you're you're sharing with us. So there's anything more you'd like to say? Um, well, I mean, I'd love to, I, I'd love to touch on some of the learnings, what we're learning really from the social entrepreneurs, social change leaders that um, we're in conversation with and interviewing. So would um, now be a good time to do well, that? You know what we can do? I think we can do that when we come back from the break, because I think that's really, um, I would really like to have a, enough time and not to get interrupted by a break by this, this conversation, well, because these well, are maybe like we invite talking Laura. About. Right. right. This is like the, the things that are coming out of the, yeah, of right. uh, how, what are the solutions? So it's like, we know that their trauma exists. Then now what? I always think that, you know, I've, I've done a lot of research and studying about adverse child experiences, for example, that we've had many guests on mm -hmm. my show about that. And one of the things that was a bit frustrating to me when I first heard about it was that once I learned about it, I go, okay, I probably have a lot of, you know, epigenetic changes that have happened to me because I have four or more ACEs in my own lived experience. And that means you are, you know, um, you have many more health problems and things that can happen to you. But then what? How do we change it? And I know that's what you're very interested in. And that's what systems change. That's the optimism. Look at, if you, you can see Laura right now, she has a big smile on her face because <laughs> that's why we want to do this. It's not only to illuminate where it came from but it's also to talk about what can we can do differently. So when we get back from our break um, with our wonderful um, uh, guest today, we will continue this discussion and talk about some solutions. I've also asked them to maybe touch upon what's happening in Ukraine right now. Many of you know that the Trauma Resource Institute that is our sponsor um, has been leading um, daily meetings with Ukrainians from EdCamp Ukraine and really dealing with very poignant, difficult questions as they are facing the horror that war brings to all of our world when it, it occurs. So we'll have a little bit of a discussion about that too when we come back. So this is Elaine Miller-Karis, and we are ready to go on our break right now. We'll be back in a few minutes. Elaine Miller-Karis book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Elaine Miller-Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience, awaken hope. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma informed and resiliency focused individuals and in communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair 
to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to traumaresourceinstitute.com for more information. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine Miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. And this is Elaine Miller Karras back um, talking to my three illustrious um, guests that are helping us understand systems change. And I'd like to, but before we get started, can you, um, if people are listening going, oh, this is very interesting. How can I get a, how can I get a hold of these folks? Can you tell us your website, Catherine, can you can just give us our website so that our listeners can jot it down um, to go and, and visit you online? Collectivechangelab.org. So that's pretty easy. Collective change lab.org. Okay. So go to their website and learn more about what they're doing in the world. So um, as we were, um, as we left uh, right before the break, we were talking about collective trauma and Laura, I know you wanted, you had a perspective that you wanted to share. Yes. Thank you. So one of the things that have been amazing about our collaboration is really being bringing together how can trauma, um, our information on trauma, uh, help us understand better what's happening in larger systems. And Elaine, you were just sharing about how there was information about the history of the U.S. that was suppressed. And that is an example of collective denial, denial being one of the symptoms of trauma. So this gaze of let's look at how these are fractals, you know, different different scales of expression of the same phenomenon. So um, in, in our bodies, the, the information gets suppressed and then it doesn't flow through our nervous systems. But when we're looking at systems, you know, then those, the equivalent would be relationships and communication and information being passed from one part of the system to another. So when that gets fragmented and fractured, then systems cannot work well, you know? And so one of the things you were interested also in, how can we heal this? One of the things is looking at the flows of information. And so recovering information about the history of, you know, what have been abuses in in our societies and really looking at how can we incorporate that and bring our care to that instead of our guilt. I think that's a very important, bringing our care instead instead of of our guilt. Yeah. Because then yeah. then maybe we can come together with that compassionate dialogue. For sure. And I think guilt is one of the, you know, the experience of intense guilt or intense shame is what keeps people from even wanting to look here. And so unless we have in place an element of care and compassion, where I can look at myself as a good kind of human being, instead of, oh my God, that's, that's you know, that horrible thing is now connected to me. I don't want to feel that. That's what keeps people from, from really looking. So again, compassion and transforming guilt into care are two essential components of what we need to do to be able to heal. Well, as you say that too, it it makes me think how important that would be as we talk about some of the divisiveness that is existing in the world today. And those of us that are working towards, you know, justice and equity and inclusion. And that seems to be a core 
call you for for us to be able to come together. So I want to shift back to Catherine now. Thank you so much, Laura. Sure. Um, Because I want to dig a little more into the learning. Um, What are you hearing from social change leaders and practitioners? What are some of their key messages that you'd like to share with our audience? So I know that all of you have some ideas of that, but let's start with you first, Catherine. Thanks so much. And, and so much, um, so many learnings that it's going to be hard for me to summarize them here, but let me start, let me offer three and let me start by, you know, sort of saying the first I think is the importance of acknowledging the existence of trauma and naming it. And many of us don't know how to do that or are afraid we're going to say the wrong thing, or perhaps we don't even see that. We we've actually found that a lot of people uh, especially, you know, those of us perhaps farther removed from communities and pain get really uncomfortable, right? Try and change topics or say things like, let's forget about the past. We just want to move forward or nod mm-hmm. like they get it, but they don't really get it. You know, they're nodding, but you can tell they're thinking, you know, what are you talking about? Um, yet, you know, when we talked with social sector leaders working with and working in communities and pain and working in unjust systems, um, you know, they observe it and they experience it and sense it on a daily basis. Yeah. Uh, but but acknowledging trauma is still deeply stigmatized. And so that's really the rub, right? Even though they, they can see and experience it, it's challenging for them to be able to convey um, how it shows up, uh, especially to stakeholders a little bit farther removed, like funders and boards. Um, so this, the second thing is really around language. And that's, one of the many insights we learned from you, Elaine, uh, which was reiterated by many of the other social sector leaders we spoke with, you know, what we name things really matters. And over and over, we heard that the language, you know, used in the medical and therapeutic fields is intimidating. And the leaders that we interviewed were, you know, they tend to use a much more uh, descriptive, evocative language that's really derived from their experience, right? They It would articulate, for example, a negative dynamic or energy, a blockage in the system. They would describe a feeling of stuckedness um, and liken it to mud. You know, the mud we're stuck in, the reason we can't seem to move forward is the trauma. Um, But, you know, what does it mean to say there's systemic level trauma or what words do you use to describe that, right? That's super hard. So just as Laura shared, one of the things that we're trying to do in our research is to build on the contributions of many others and and offer a common language along with a set of symptoms or manifestations um, of what trauma looks like at a systemic level so that, you know, we can help other leaders have a language for what they're experiencing and sensing um, and understand it for what it really is as manifestations of trauma. And the third and, you know, the last, and I'll stop here, but, you know, this is, I think, the message that fills us the most with hope. And that is, you know, that the, the cracks in our collective denial, you know, that trauma is all around us and within us are, are sort of are blowing wide open, um, you know, kind of due probably to a confluence of factors I could mm-hmm. only speculate on. Um, but, you know, so many, you know, anecdotes and indications that, that the, that's the case. An Indigenous leader in New Zealand shared with us that, you know, about three years ago, you know, policymakers, social change leaders were afraid of even talking about, you know, addressing trauma of colonization. And now groups are, you know, knocking down her door. Um, As another leader working in California shared with us, you know, to her, it feels like for years, we all just subscribe to this mindset 
of focusing on the work, you know, just going about the work of changing systems. And now it feels that we're in this collective moment of awakening, that if we've all experienced trauma in different ways, and if we're trying to change systems, that we need to address trauma. So um, that's a message that we're also hearing loud and clear as well. All right. So I want to just see if any of our other guests, John or Laura, want to add to what you said. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, well, I can go and uh, on the side of the Latin Americas, we also have interviewed people from Latin America. One of the things is uh, the presence of fragmentation and shame and mistrust, you know, being very present, not just in systems, but in the whole of our society. However, what I also hear loud and clear is how important it is to come back to connect and really repair our relations with the indigenous people and with the land herself. And I say herself because in Spanish land is la tierra, you know, it's, it's, it's yes. female, right? And so, and just really what depth of resources for us to be able to heal exist already that, but we need to honor them first before we can have access to them. And who will we'll be, who we will have to be in order to repair those relationships will also in itself be healing. So really looking at ourselves first, you know, trauma trauma healing, if I want to heal a system, I have to start with me because otherwise, you know, whatever trauma I carry is just going to get entangled. It's going to get, it creates the mud and the stuckness that, uh, you know, the people that Catherine was talking about feel. And so starting with myself and then moving into larger um, fields, that's kind of the way to go. So I'll stop. Yeah, there. As you're saying that too, I'm, um, I was speaking at a conference in Canada a couple of months ago, and they started with a territorial acknowledgement. It was the right. University of Calgary. It was their school of social work. And, you know, and, and I, I just thought that was, that was something that perhaps we all need to be thinking about doing is that the territory acknowledgement that people came in and took land that was had a different vista of ownership for our for native peoples and so if we don't acknowledge that that happened i think that's so primary and when we're talking about the americas but also many parts of the globe where people came in and said well you cannot speak your language you now must speak this language and took away the very essence of their culture and so to me this is so primary a primary perspective about global healing. So I'm, I'm wondering what you think about territorial acknowledgements. Do you think that's something that's important for us to start integrating? Or it seems like the, the, maybe it's a little thing, but maybe it's not such a little thing. You know, it's those little things, quote unquote, that um, start to bring in awareness about this, you know, and uh, as Catherine was saying also, naming trauma and making it more visible is part of what we're really out to do here. And yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. That is one way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So John, did you have anything you wanted to add? Thank you. I so do. You're the, Cause you're the I founder. Do. Goodness gracious. Oh, goodness. You know, this kind of started with you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm a founder I, of something too. And I, people <laughs> often ask me questions like that. So yeah. go ahead. <laughs> well, I, I think what's been amazing through this research um, has been sort of you know, the lifting up. So there, there's individual trauma and there's individual healing. And what I, where we're seeing the power is in, you know, there's collective trauma and then there's collective healing and the power of collective healing. And we can look at trauma all over the world, trauma that's happening in Ukraine right now. Um, when we were doing our interviews and, and talking with practitioners, we talked to amazing practitioners who were working with the Inuit community in Canada or the Muslim community of Minnesota 
or men impacted by the criminal justice system in California. And they were able to articulate the tremendous power of being able to be with others who have, had, have experienced that same trauma as you, you, you know, we're all different, but, you know, some, we, sometimes we experience similar traumas and, and to be able to talk about it, to be able to heal together and the tremendous, you know, I, we've heard so many practitioners talk about, uh, you know, the, the tremendous power, what happens when people move into that healing stage mm-hmm. and, and the incredible innovation and, 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 and creativity that comes about and just think about that at a collective level. And, and, and it's just been so energizing to hear about that. And when we think about our systems that are stuck, that the only way, in, in part because our solutions are insufficient, because we're acting out of a place of trauma, can we act out of a place of flow? Can we act out of a place where there's energy? And where, you know, this, the, imagine this, the creativity and the innovation, the solutions that comes from that. So, you know, that to me is, is, is why we're doing this work is to see if we can explore and help others explore this, you know, getting to the other side. Yeah. And when you, even the, the, um, the metaphor of getting, being stuck in the mud, stuck in the mud is not flow. And so how can we collectively be able to illuminate how we create that flow, not only as individuals, but as families, communities, as our larger systems, that makes just so much sense to me. Um, So I have now I want to go. It's okay. I'm going to go to another question. Um, And this is really about the three of you. Um, So this how let's talk a little bit more about how trauma manifests in systems just for a moment. But first, I'd like to talk about how you all as people, as individuals, as human beings on this planet of ours, that trauma is not just out there. It is in here. So what have you learned about yourselves um, in doing this work together? So who would like to go first? What have you learned? The little silence there. Who's going to go first on this one? All right. I'm happy. I'm happy. I'm just going to have to pick one of you. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, this, this work has been really profound for me um, and hugely meaningful uh, for me personally. Uh, you know, it's reminded me and it's really also connected me more deeply with uh the fact that my personal childhood trauma um, is always with me. And if I'm not vigilant, you know, it can take over my reactions to a situation when I'm in stress. So I'm not going to, without going into the specifics of the major events that created my childhood trauma, I say that, you know, sort of the habitual response that I have is this, I've developed a fear, an outsized fear that the harm that I may have caused others with my words and actions that I may do something very small and feel like, oh, my God, you know, the, there's crisis. And so since I've begun this work, I can think of at least two situations, actually reasonably significant situations for me where just with better, better awareness around this, you know, I've been able to sort of step back and say to myself, the situation isn't all my fault. It's not 100 percent. I'm not 100 percent to blame. And it sort of kept me from going into that self-shame spiral. Mm-hmm. And you know, what that's allowed me to do is sort of access the skills I have as an adult, not as a child, um, when the trauma occurred and, and, you know, develop some connected and creative solutions. So, yeah, I mean, it's been hugely meaningful to me. Well, and I think, John, I really appreciate, I'm, you know, your humility by saying that. I mean, I know this happens to me, that sometimes we don't show up as our best self. 
And yet, how can we shift out of that and saying, wait a second, that is really a reaction from my childhood. Yeah. To the word, this person who had nothing to do with my childhood. Right. And yet there was something about the interchange that caused those those physical sensations that led to reaction. But I think if we can all start to wrap those, we can at least go back and say, oh my gosh, I really want to apologize to you. I didn't show up as my best self. So, you know, can we, can we start again? But if we don't recognize those connections, then I think we just, we leave a large, large, um, a lot of garbage behind us that then becomes hard to repair. I don't know if that makes sense, what I'm saying. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to go, okay. So Laura or Catherine, who would like to go next? Catherine's ready. I can tell. Catherine, go ahead. I can just tell. <laughs> I, I'm, no, I just, I want to say I, I relate to everything that's been shared. Um, and I also really resonate with, you know, Dr. Gabor Mate's definition, right? The trauma is not what happens to you. It's what happens inside you as a result of what happens to you. And it's that scarring that makes you less flexible, more rigid, less feeling and more defended. And um I'm still on a healing journey, frankly, from a very traumatic event that happened 20 years ago this year. And so I can only speak from my experience, but I've certainly found that to be true, right? I spent so many years pushing that pain down and locking it away like a chest at the bottom of the sea. Um, It was just, you know, easier to survive that way. It was um, too painful, but that came at a cost. Yeah. You know, I, I was able to be authentic and warm with my close friends, but in, in, you know, kind of work settings, I, I sometimes came across as, you know, cold or inscrutable and, you know, it was, it was hard for colleagues to truly know me. And, you know, that's the way I wanted it, I guess. Right. That was my defensive armor and how I protected myself. And so, so healing for me has taken many forms, uh, many experiences, not just therapy, collective healing experiences as well. And, one of the things I've learned through those experiences and through this work is um, how much trauma each of us is carrying that we hide from others. And in many cases, hide even from ourselves. And mm-hmm. the other thing I learned uh, by deepening my awareness of how my unhealed and unresolved trauma affected me is that there is no true separation from the trauma we carry and how we show up, right? It might manifest differently for others than it did for me, but it shows up in the defenses that we build and the work that we do in the world. And so in doing my own trauma work, I was really able to let go of a lot of those defenses. And it opened me to a more you know, authentic way of working um, and being really a more compassionate, more empathetic way of being. So Catherine, I'm just, I'm going to, this is a curiosity question we didn't prepare, but I'm, you know, because what I've experienced from you that I want you to know is your warmth. I've experienced your warmth as, as we've been here together in my other conversation with you. Um, So I just want you to know that first of all. Um, But secondly, I'm wondering, um, I, I think about this in my own journey that if it hadn't been for the trauma, I wouldn't be doing the work I'm doing with healing and trying to kind of unwrap the different things that have happened to us. Do you think that um, that part of what happened to you is also what helps propel you to the passion of being this change agent in the world. Oh, Just an easy question. question. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I would say yes, without a doubt. Yes, without a doubt. It, it, um, it opens me to the pain and suffering that other people feel. Um, it deepens my awareness about how to show up out of my best self in the work that I do in the world. Um, 
And it is deeply healing. Yeah. It is deeply healing to be exploring this um, and the potential of healing, right, for social change. Yeah. And so I'm really wanting to also, you know, reach out and say something to our listeners. You know, we have a global audience. And then if you're experiencing trauma right now, just le- listening to what comes forth from those experiences that come can be, you can become a change agent. You can learn how to take that. And it's really kind of the transformation of the butterfly, right? You might be in a cocoon, but then you can spread your wings in such a beautiful way that brings greater healing into the world. So, so thank you, Catherine, for answering that question, but I, I want to go now over to Laura. Yes. Over to Laura, but I imagine you have some things to say about this too, Laura. For sure. And I so resonate also with what has been shared already, you know, for me, um, having to heal from the trauma that I carried really became a gateway into my, you know, my, my brightest self, my deepest wisdom that I would never have thought I had, you know, and capacities that I, you know, when I think back to when I was still carrying like unresolved and unseen trauma that kept me, for example, I was not able to speak in public. Like I remember being in front of eight people and, you know, like my mind would go blank. I couldn't articulate. It was horrible, horrible, horrific, horrifying. And, you know, being able to do what I do today, you know, with the Collective Trauma Summit, where I know that we have 100,000 people out there listening, I would have been completely paralyzed. And so in being able to look at, well, why was that that way? What pain, what fear, what terror, what shame was there? And as I became capable of touching into those places with love and compassion, that unlocked something in my heart that allows me to show up, you know, courageously and share about stuff like that and, and stay grounded and be able to now share this with you. And my mind is not going blank. It's like, yay. So there's this, <laughs> this life affirmation, this experience of, of being alive and then life becomes so precious and love is part of my life every day, you know, and that's not how my life was before. So that's what I, that's why I think this really is worth it. There, there's a phrase in Spanish that's coming up, la chispa de la vida. La chispa spark, de la vida, right. Yes, the spark of life, you know, exactly. that I'm definitely experiencing from you. And it's hard to imagine that at one point in your life that you didn't have the words you had the words but you didn't know that you could I, express them right, you certainly can do it now right, well you know I'm, you. I'm, I'm, I just want to share something to you know my mom um she was um I have to say she was ashamed of her indigenous heritage I have a family picture I'm not at home right now otherwise I'd show it to you all but um and it's a, a picture of my great grandmother, whose name was Magdalena. And we share the same birthday, which is very meaningful to me. Mm. And um, if you see her, uh, and she was, my mother always said that she was born in Guatemala. And, uh, but then I would look at the picture because, well, you know, she, but she was Irish. <laughs> and, mm. and I look at this picture, there's no way that, and I had my, you know, DNA done. There's no Irish in there. But, but I'm, I'm not saying that in a joking way, but I'm saying that in the deep way that colonialism impacted her. Mm. Now here, she was born in 1924. Um, but that really impacted our family and impacted the shame that she carried and that she carried to America, that she transferred to us. And there's many other components that I won't go into, but it wasn't something that stayed in El Salvador. It's something that carried through. And I just think that's so important that, that people understand that again, when we say the unconscious mechanisms of trauma that's working into in our systems and how we express ourselves, even being able to express ourselves, because I also was that person that was very shy and could not speak in front of people. I know people can't believe that now, but it was also the transformational experience of recognizing and embracing 
the trauma, but not just the trauma, the strength of, you know, I can think of my mother, this gritty 20 year old coming from El Salvador to San Francisco and not being able to speak English. And uh, yet knowing that that was important for her life to do something differently. So anyway, I wanted to share that with you. Sure, that's beautiful. And just one last thing is that this is also a gateway to a, to a spiritual dimension, because yes. when you start to realize I'm not this horrible thing that I feel, but then if I'm not that, then what am I? And as you sit with that question, then that becomes a portal into a much larger dimension of our being that I think is essential for healing as well. So we have a lot more to talk about together. And I am looking at that we are very close to, to uh, being at the end of our time. So we have to have a part two. So definitely a part two. So tell me when I know you're working on a white paper. When is the white paper going to be completed and going to be available for the world to see? It'll be coming out um, later this spring. We're um, in partnership with several publications, uh, including San Francisco Innovation Review, uh, the India Development Review, and others, uh, and the paper itself and accompanying um, you know, sort of thought pieces and resources where social change leaders and community healers and grassroots leaders can go to learn more will all be available on our website. All right. So what I would like to invite you to do right now, I hope that you will agree to come on the show for part two, because the systems change in terms of trauma in the complexity of systems, to me, is so important for us not to talk about at length. And maybe it's just serendipity that we know that we needed more time for that part of it. But I think now we've laid the groundwork of what is to come and to have a further dialogue. So you don't have to say yes right now. I know you are busy, you're busy people, but I hope that you will agree to do that. And we have oh, one with minute. pleasure. Yes. And, oh, good. They said yes. So they're coming back. <laughs> we have one minute. Le- we have one minute left. Okay. Say the name of the website one more time. Collectivechangelab.org. Okay. Collectivechangelab.org. And for our listeners, thank you for coming in and listening to us and these three wonderful guests that are really changing the world. And we'll have more from them in later spring when we do part two of the series. And remember what else is true in your life. We've heard some compelling stories of how we all had times in our life when we didn't know that we could have a voice. And I'm, I'm just, if some of you are out there thinking that you don't have a voice, think again. I think you can. So remember what else is true in your life. See you next week. Thank you so much for listening to Resiliency Within. And I'm Elaine Miller-Karis signing off. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karis, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within, with host Elaine Miller-Karras, is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.